This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's show comes from St Augustine's Anglican Church in Moreland in Melbourne's Inner North. We usually record before a live audience, but due to coronavirus restrictions, today we have an online audience. Today's big question, why preserve anything? We're asking this question today to Professor Michael Clark. Michael is Professor of Zoology at La Trobe University. He has a long-standing interest in the impact of fire upon fauna, and in 2010, he appeared as an expert witness in fire ecology at the Victorian Bushfires Royal Commission and continues to conduct ecological research that informs public policy. And he joins me now, Mike. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Great to be here. Thank I'm glad you. that you could join us. Now, Mike, Clara, just to clarify, you haven't ever played cricket for Australia, have you? No, I haven't. Um, but I regularly disappoint uh, taxi drivers from the subcontinent uh, when they come to pick me up. <laughs> okay. You can see their face drop. Okay, well, they said they're coming to pick up Michael Clark, and yeah, then it's just uh, me. And it's just you. Well, no. do you think the other the cricketer Michael Clark ever gets confused for you and gets questions on uh, fire and fauna? I don't think so. Um, he's never sought advice from me, so I'm assuming he just wings it if he gets tricky <laughs> right, questions on fire and fauna. Okay, sure, okay. Now, Michael, you did appear as an expert witness in fire ecology at the Victorian Bushfires Royal Commission. So what did you tell them? I think the key message I was trying to get across is that managing fire to protect both people and nature mm-hmm. is not rocket science. Sure. It's much more complex than that. Okay, right, yeah. It's complex because you've got to bring together the best science that tells you how fire behaves and the impact fire has on people and property and fauna, and then you've got to match that with what is the best thing to do next, and that bit is about values. Yeah. You inform it with science, but then we have to juggle priorities. Okay. And that's what makes it trickier than rocket science. Right. Now, we like to kick off bigger questions with some smaller questions just to get us thinking. Today, we're asking Dr. Michael Clark about why we should preserve the environment. So, Mike, our smaller questions today are about things worth preserving. Okay? Mm-hmm. There's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one. A building in Clifton Hill in Melbourne's inner northeast is preserved as a heritage-listed building. It's been described as possibly the most exquisite and intact example of jazz modern architecture in Victoria. What is the building presently being used for? Is it A, a hotel, B, a museum, C, a railway station, or D, a McDonald's? I'm going to go with Macca's. A chippy the answer shop. D, you're going to go with Macca's? I'm going with the chippy shop. Well, the actual the answer is actually D, McDonald's. This McDonald's is is one of the few fast food restaurants to be heritage listed. The building was built in 1937. Some have dubbed it the most beautiful McDonald's in the world. There you go. Yeah, does that make you want to go and get some Maccas there? I've been there. (laughs) You've been there. It's a goodie. You enjoy uh, getting heritage listed McDonald's, is that right? It makes such a difference. It makes (laughs) makes a difference. Very good. You're doing well, Mike. This is great. I'm a bit worried about these questions. Okay, question two. The World Heritage List considers part of the world's cultural or national heritage which are of outstanding interest and therefore need to be preserved. Which of the following natural sites in Australia is not a World Heritage Mm. Site? Okay, Is it A, Blue Mountains, B, Great Barrier Reef, C, Wilson's Promontory National Park, or D, Lord Howe Island? 
It's, I think it's C, Wilson's Promontory National Park. I don't think it's got World Heritage listing. It doesn't. No, that's right. That's the right answer. Correct. Yes, <laughs> that's the right answer is C. Yes, uh, Blue Mountains, Great Barrier Reef and the Lord Howe Island are all World Heritage areas. But the Prom is probably a second or third oldest national park in Australia. So. Okay. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get to the Prom in a second, but because, okay. Mike, your answers are worth preserving. You passed. <laughs> you got two of our two Oof. smaller questions right. And if we had a live audience here now, that'd give you a big applause. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> So, Mike, whilst not a World Heritage Area, the Wilson's Promontory National Park is still a... Well, it's an old national park, as you say. What is Australia's second... Second, we had Royal National Park came first, and we were hot on the trail of the US. US set up invented national parks. Actually, Mm -hmm. John Muir, a Christian, was key in motivating people to set aside places. Okay, it was a a Christian man who thought that national parks were a good thing. Were a good idea, and he convinced the federal... American government for Yellowstone and soon after that we had Royal National Park in Sydney yep. sort of within a couple of years. Right. But then you mentioned years. that you say that we had a national park in Wilson's Prom. Like is that a special place to you? Do you have oh, some sort huge. of connection to it? Yeah. It's, I guess it's where I say I mostly grew up. Right. If, okay. I, if, if I have grown up then it's there. Right. And I've had the privilege of also working there professionally. So. Okay. What do you love about the prom? It's just so diverse. It's special. Um, yeah, in Bruce McAvaney's terms, it's special. Um, <laughs> it's special, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, you've done a lot of research down there as well. Mm-hmm. So what sort of particular research have you done at Wilson's Prom? Formerly, my research down there started studying animal behaviour. So mm-hmm. I'm a behavioural ecologist, evolutionary biologist at heart, and I like to try and understand why animals behave the way they do. And I was studying a population of a bird called a crescent honey eater, which is a gorgeous um, one of our native honey eaters, and I was trying to make sense of their social organisation. Yeah. So what, so what made you interested in those particular birds? Honey eaters are a huge family of Australian birds, the biggest family of Australian birds we have, and most of them, the males and the females, look the same. Mm-hmm. And in crescent honey eaters, the males are different from the females, and I was interested with what went with that. Okay. Did that influence their social organisation and how much the dads helped out at the nest compared to the... Yeah. So, Purely nerdy, curiosity-driven research. And so yeah. I'm a curious sort of bloke and mm-hmm. I was keen to find out why things behaved the way they did. But there was something happened to this research which perhaps ignited your interest in the impact of fire on fauna. Sure Can did. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so I've been studying these crescent honey eaters for about 10 years, had them all individually marked, knew yep. who was who. You named them, did you? No. That, that, <laughs> okay, right. no we, don't, we don't name things. Okay, um, right. Uh, we followed them and their intimate personal lives but we don't name them. Okay. Anyway, April Fool's Day... 2005, a prescribed burn that was lit to regenerate heathland of about 60 hectares reignited in the middle of the night. Right. A fire took off, burnt 6,000 hectares, and including all of my study site. So what happened to the honey eaters? That means they were, they, they were wiped out? I hope they fled, but I've been back every year for the last 14 years studying the same site and I've never seen one of my colour-marked birds again. Yeah. So I presume they perished in the fire. Oh, that's that's obviously must be devastating for you in some ways. It was a very, very emotional experience going back to a site I'd visited and knew intimately every rock and tree um, and for it to be unrecognisable mm. and to have it deathly silent and a stench of smoke in your nostrils. It's a, it's a very chilling experience. Mm. But aren't Australia's plants and wildlife designed to withstand fire? Yes and no. It's a really commonly held belief amongst Australians to not worry back. She'll be right, the bush will bounce back. Yep. And for some fauna and flora that's true, but for a lot it's not. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our 
ecosystems have evolved in the absence of fire, so rainforests exist in the absence of fire, and even for those animals and plants that are adapted to fire, fire can be too hot, fire can be too extensive, fire can be too frequent. And unfortunately, under climate change, that is what Australia is experiencing. That's, that's the uh, the forecast as well. That's only going yeah, to get, well, It's the reality it. now. Yes. It's not a forecast. Well, so then maybe unpack a bit more how catastrophic perhaps then the ecological impact of the bushfires in Australia in early 2020 were. Well, the, the only way to start is with the word of the 2020, unprecedented. Yeah. 50 times greater than the worst fires California's ever experienced, five times the extent of the Amazon rainforest fires. A colleague of mine, Jim Radford, has just co-led up a study that's been published in Nature last the week before last where it pointed out 70 species have lost more than 30% of their habitat in this single fire season. 49 species we thought that were really common have lost so much of their habitat that they now should probably be added to the threatened species list. So that represents about a 14% increase in the number of species we'll have as threatened due to one summer. Mm. That's kind of getting to the terms of catastrophic then, it I suppose. It sure is. Yeah, it yeah. sure is. We, I couldn't picture another event that you'd say that sort of impact. I mean, we've heard stories about, you know, billions of animals yep. perishing, etc. Three I mean, billion. Is, is that true? Like, is that, is that... I think it's an underestimate. The latest estimates are close to three billion individual animals. And that's only if you're a vertebrate-biased zoologist. Let's forget... That's talking about vertebrates. That's not, we're not talking insects here. We're talking about things with a backbone. Right. The estimates are around 3 billion individual creatures have been killed. So, I mean, that's well, that raises various emotional responses for many people. And it does obviously lead us on to today's yep, big sure. question, which is how much we should be concerned about preserving yep. what's left. Now, you, you often ask today's big question, why preserve anything to students that you teach? Yep. So how, how do they go about answering it? They're often flummoxed. Yeah. They've never actually thought deeply about why preserve anything. They've basically assumed it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Those that can actually articulate a reason for why you should preserve anything sort of have their answers in two major categories. Yeah. The first category is out of just simple, pure self-interest, what some people have described as an anthropocentric utilitarian view. Yeah, so there's some some big words there. So do you want to unpack that? Try and unpack that. A human-centred, good-for-us view of why you should preserve things. We should not hurt nature because it will hurt us, our descendants, because we get food, air, water, um, medicine, shelter, joy out of nature. So you ought to preserve it because you're dopey if you don't because it'll bite you in the bum if you don't. <laughs> so, so, so it almost seems selfish. Is that too much to push it? Uh, I would interpret that as a selfish motivation and I think at times if you appeal to self-interest only, you can end up with perverse outcomes. So I don't find it a very satisfying justification for preserving things. I think we've seen that with COVID. If you appeal to people's self-interest, look after yourself, you can have perverse outcomes like people rushing off and buying toilet paper and going, oh my goodness, I'll look after myself. Yes, yes. At not terribly good for the communal good. Mm. So you say that's the first response, which is a utilitarian... Yeah, yeah, utilitarian response is a very common one. And, and what, what's the other, other main response? The other main response is the one that says all organisms have the right to exist. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that intuitively makes sense, though, doesn't it? Says who? Um, my experience of rights are rights are what powerful entities bestow on others. 
And so I'm not actually sure it's pragmatically helpful because I ask the students then if they say all organisms have the right to exist, can you live that coherently? Does that right extend to all species, including bacteria, so you don't take antibiotics ever? Does it extend to all individuals so you, and all species, so you don't eat anything that's living? Are you only eating ever dead things that you've waited till they've died naturally? Right. So I think it's a hard, it's a hard ethic to live consistently. Mm. Um, and I don't also, animals a, don't necessarily live by that same ethic themselves, do they? Like they don't, carnivals. and I guess I would say we are made from the dust and we are one of the animals. And so it doesn't seem to match with my experience of reality. As a conservation biologist, I also find it unsatisfying because in my work as a conservation biologist, regrettably, we have to kill things in order to preserve species from going extinct. I could stand there and watch feral foxes and feral cats wipe out as they're doing Australia's fauna and say, I'm not going to interfere in nature, nature's run its course. My mum brought me up to clean up a mess if I'd made it. Mm -hmm. You make the mess, you clean it up. That was her adage. I don't think we can responsibly stand back and simply say, I'll let nature run its course, having messed things up, having introduced all sorts of... Wonderful. I like foxes. Foxes are one of the most beautiful animals. Yeah. But they're devastatingly bad for Australian wildlife. Mm. And we're the all-time winners in the extinction business, Australians. Yeah. We are at the top of the league table in Australian in mammal extinctions. Right. I can't stand back and say, oh, well, let's just nature run its course. Well, I mean, perhaps even at Wilson's Prom, like the... You go around shooting deer or something there as well is that right i'm not shooting deer no, <laughs> okay, no, right. no but i have i have been where things have had to be shot um deer are introduced they're a pest they're threatening whole ecosystems and we need to control them no conservation biologist likes killing anything it's the antithesis of what we're trained to that's, do that's that's what that's not our motivation our motivation is to try and maintain and preserve the incredible diversity we've inherited mm. so it's a real tension so hence these different responses yeah, very different. Are, are both very both of these different responses have sort of in some ways inadequate answers how do you go about answering that question why preserve anything it comes from my faith i guess um, to your christian faith my christian faith yep yep i come from a perspective i guess that we're guests here mm. the earth is the lord's is what the scriptures tell us it doesn't belong to us and for me, if God, the creator, values it, I shouldn't trash it. Mm. So then your Christian faith then really does provide you with a justification then perhaps to, uh, to do the work that you do, to, pre- yeah. to preserve things and to, to provide, it provides a, an intellectual justification then? An intellectual justification and a sense of responsibility. Mm. Um, my reading of the... Genesis' story is that we were placed in the garden to care for it and till it, Mm. uh, not to rape and pillage it. Mm. We have just mentioned the Bible here now, Mike, in the Old Testament book of Psalms, which was a bit like a songbook for the ancient people of Israel. Uh, Now, Psalm 104 is a creation psalm which outlines an interpretation of the voices of the various components of God's creation. There's various voices in the psalm, but verses 12 and 13 say, The birds of the sky nest by the waters, they sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. 
Now, Mike, you're one of Australia's leading ornithologists, um, an expert on birds. So how do you react then when you read about birds and nesting by the waters and singing among the branches as a part of God's creation? I guess the delight that the psalmist is capturing in the diversity of what God's created mm. and the privilege as a scientist to just in discover the intricacies of that whole system. Mm. The more I, I learn, the more I am in awe of the complexity. Mm. Um, I've got colleagues in the biochemistry field who are exploring the intricacies of just a single cell and what goes on in that. But it, at any level, it is just extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Life. Yeah. Yep. So if God chooses to create it and to sustain it, as this psalm implies, I should take none of it for granted and I should care for it. So this passage then says it was that the land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. So is there something intrinsic in the land then that warrants special care? I think we're taught in scripture that the land was important to God and is important to God. So if you go to Leviticus and you read about the year of the Sabbath, there's a couple of things that are stressed there. The land is mine. So God's speaking to Moses. uh, The land shall not be bought or sold in perpetuity. The land is mine, says the Lord. So we're guests. Mm -hmm. We're just passing through. And God wants to proclaim a year of solemn um, Sabbath rest for the land. Mm. That implies to me a care for both the people and for the land on which they dwell. Mm. That's so counter to the way we've exploited landscapes. Yeah, well, it says in Leviticus uh, 25 that the land is to have a year of rest. Mm. And so it almost implies that the, the, the land has agency in its own right. Indeed, yeah. Now the psalm goes on in verses 16 to 18 and says, The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyrax. So it says here that the high mountains that belong to the wild goats, the crags are a refuge for the hyrax. I'm not even sure what a hyrax is. Do you know what a hyrax is? I had to look up what a hyrax is. <laughs> okay. I, I've never met a hyrax. You've never met? Okay. No, or a lorax. Um, but uh, <laughs> a hyrax, I learnt, is, uh, looks like a, a rabbit with a nose punched in, shorter ears, um, but is actually related most closely to elephants and dugongs. So this right. funny okay. little What's, thing, okay. Fascinating. thing lives in the crags. Wow, there you go. Yep. There, there you go. You heard go. it here on Bigger Questions. That's right, yeah. Yep. Um, but it seems to imply, this psalm though seems to imply that there are places in God's creation for his creatures. They seem to kind of belong there. Yep. Is that a motivation to preserve them? It is. I, I'm an ecologist at heart and ecology comes, the word ecology comes from the Greek ekos, the home life. And this in this passage, the psalmist for me captures the sense that everything has a home, has a habitat in my language, and without that habitat, it will go extinct. So it's actually recognising the complexity, and that's always been a trigger for curiosity for me, just the Mm. intricacies of nature and the interconnectedness of it all. Mm. Now, how do you then reconcile a passage like this with your experience of the honey eaters at Wilson's Prom, which were wiped out after a fire? Uh, Because it talks about here the birds making the nest, the stork its home, etc., and yet the home of the honey eaters that you were researching was wiped out. So, so how do you recognise this, this tension? Yeah, this, this is a really big question that we probably could spend several hours talking about because it goes to the heart of suffering in nature. But earlier in the psalm, you'll also have read in verse 21, 
that the world that God has created can be a perilous place. So there's a line in that psalm that says, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. I'm pretty sure that's not the favourite verse of every gazelle in Africa. No. But Tennyson's quote that nature's red in tooth and claw rings true and this complex, wondrous and sometimes bemusing planet seems to contain within it the possibility of suffering. Like my honey eaters suffered, like people are suffering as we speak. It seems to be a fundamental reality of life on this planet. And I'm not sure if the joys we can have can be experienced without suffering, no matter how much I might wish that to be the case. My wife came across a, a quote from a, an artist yesterday a guy called Wallace Stegner, that said the brook would lose its song if you removed the rocks. And there's something about this life that contains suffering and there's something about this life that contains beauty. And as Tennyson put it, we don't know the full answer this side of the veil. Mm. So, yeah, big question. It is a big question. So in some, in some I, ways, yeah. though, you can still uh, enjoy the honey eaters for, for what they are. but And I suppose know that... God is still caring for them in some sense, even though there is a, a catastrophe around them? That's that... what my faith gives me, a hope that there is a bigger picture of which I only see a small part. Mm. Now, the overall message of Psalm 104 is summarised in verse 24, which says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. So what does this tell us about why it's worth preserving anything at all? They're God's. They're not ours. They're gods, they're not ours. And we have to treat that with respect, those creatures and those creations, and not as commodities, which has been our track record, unfortunately, as Christians and as humans generally. Yeah, well, you just mentioned there that, that perhaps isn't Christian theology to blame, though, for the current ecological crisis. For example, in the 1960s, yeah. uh, Lynn White wrote a very influential paper where he claimed that Christian theology taught that nature has no reason for existence save to serve man. Creation was a slave in the whim of humanity. So doesn't Christian theology push away from preserving anything? Only if, like when Lynn White, you choose to distort the clear teachings of Christianity could you come to that conclusion. You only have to dwell for a few milliseconds on the passages we've talked about of God describing it as good, of putting us in the garden as stewards, um, of all the passages, in, like we've read in, in Psalms, that teach us that it is precious to God. Mm. A couple of questions have come in from our sure. text line from our online audience. Yep. Um, should we preserve areas as untouched wilderness or instead seek to manage the land using First Nations practice, for example, planned burns, growing yams and eating kangaroos? The wilderness concept is built on the assumption that we haven't stuffed it up already and that nature will work it out. Unfortunately, there's not a part of the planet that's unaffected by human beings. So as much as we would love to uh, set aside wilderness areas and say they will now look after themselves and set themselves right, I can't with all integrity say that's an appropriate or responsible thing to do. Mm. They will continue to go downhill because of the things we're doing. Mm. We must change our way. So Mike, then you've talked about your Christian faith obviously being a key motivator for mm -hmm. you to, to preserve yeah. anything at all, but what made you convinced that the Christian faith had anything to offer in the first place? Um, 
I guess as an older teenager, I explored a number of different worldviews. Um, I was attracted to the idea that, oh, fundamentally all religions are much the same. Um, as I explored that more deeply, I came to the conclusion that was pretty lazy thinking intellectually and quite disrespectful of the differences between worldviews. Mm -hmm. I had the f good fortune to have older Christians, some of whom were um, well-established scientists who showed me by their lives and their experience that Christianity could be a coherent worldview, mm -hmm. that I was loved, then what, what I did mattered. Mm. Um, and, and that was impactful for you? That was really import, important to me. Yep. And so then what made you then continue to continue on? You, you, re, you resolved some of these, these challenges that you've I faced? did, yep. They helped me work through a whole bunch of issues in relation to myths about science and uh, Christianity being in conflict. Excellent, yeah. So then how does your Christian faith then now impact your work in preservation? Two ways. I guess it gives me motivation because it is my responsibility as I understand it from Scripture to care for nature. Mm -hmm. It is also my responsibility to use the gifts, whatever they are, that God has given me to the best of my ability. Mm. A number of other questions coming in, which is fantastic. Uh, this is fant great to have some questions coming in here. What is your top suggestion for a positive action we can take to help preserve our environment? Turn off the lights. Um, for a I tell that to my children all the time. All the I think time. that's one of the, the gifts of being a father is that I have Turn to... Turn off the lights, walk as much as possible, uh, reduce your usage of things that are not recyclable. Um, it starts with us. It starts with us. And we've learnt under COVID how much is possible. Well, there is a sense in which though, ecology and preservation can be tough work. As you yeah. mentioned, there's lots of hard things that we can do. There's a lot of effort in preserving things. Your Christian message is one of grace, of unmerited favour. So how do you process this apparent conflict of ideas? I do my work, I guess I see my work as a response to the extraordinary generosity of the host. I'm a visitor. God the Creator allows me, through his grace, to live on this planet. I do that not in the hope of trying to create some kind of utopian um, vision of new earth or to earn brownie points. So I guess I see my work as like the prodigal son who realises he's trashed the inheritance, throws himself on the forgiveness of the father and rolls up his sleeve to work with the father again. Mm. That's, I guess, the way I make sense of it. Mm. So, Mike, why preserve anything? The creation is precious to God and belongs to God, number one. Two, we are extraordinarily fortunate guests and we must care for this incredible gift that we've been given the responsibility of caring for from the beginning. I believe that is actually our common and fundamental calling. Mm. So your and your and your Christian faith obviously makes a big difference. It does. To your... It gives me a, a framework mm. and a motivation. Mm. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's reflection on the big question: Why preserve anything? From Psalm 104:24. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. I look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions. Please thank our guest today, Professor Michael Clark. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.